Happy holidays and welcome to the Business Brew. I wanted to thank all y'all for tuning in. I couldn't imagine the reception that these first three episodes have gotten. I look forward to many more. I'm honored that y'all are giving me the time to listen to some conversations that I'm fortunate enough to have. This one that is about to drop is my perception of a great Christmas episode. It's a guy in my family that I have always looked up to. I consider him a mentor. He's one of the most admirable humans that I know and somebody that I think people can learn a lot of business lessons from. He made a fair amount of his money in a management buyout of a retail concept. He touches on some interesting competitive dynamics, working with Disney, just a real great example in my mind of always making the best out of the opportunities that you're given and being persistent without necessarily expecting something in return. And he ended up, you know, running his own companies and then became a chairman of 10 private equity portfolio companies. I hope you all enjoy it. I'm honored to call this man not only a family member, but a friend and mentor. And I look forward to having a fantastic 2021 with y'all. Thank you for tuning in for these first episodes. I look forward to doing a lot more and having a lot more good times with everybody. So happy new year, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and uh, let's get it in 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. This is your host, Bill Brewster. I have a a guest that I'm extremely fortunate to talk to today, a hero of mine, Jack Rohrbach. Um, Jack has had a long and distinguished career that we'll get into, and uh, we're hoping that he's going to share some of his wisdom with us. So, Jack, how you doing? Well, this could be real short. (laughs) I suspect it won't be. I suspect it won't be. Um... I was trying to think of how to introduce your career, and I guess that the only things that I know how to say about it from a business perspective is that it's super impressive and that you've done a lot of stuff. So um, you ran your own company for a long time and then ended up running portfolio companies for a private equity firm. But outside of that, I don't know how to describe what you did very succinctly. So do you want to go into it? Yeah, why don't why don't I give you a little uh, summary of uh, of my career? That'd be great. Uh, when I got out of school, I went to work for in the sales training program for Cannon Mills in New York. All their mills were in the South, but their marketing and sales offices were in New York. Uh, so I went to work for Cannon. And and after some period of time, I was assigned a sales territory that covered the state of Connecticut, Western Massachusetts, and then all the accounts around New York that the senior salespeople didn't want. (laughs) Uh, I got the scraps. Uh, But in but in Connecticut and West and Western Massachusetts, I was I had all the accounts in that physical area. And 
about a year after I was working for Canon, who was the big guy in the industry. They were the primary uh, supplier of towels and sheets and so forth to all the retail trade, no matter what class it was in. But I realized after about a year that Fieldcrest Mills was the real innovator in the industry. They were emphasizing fashion and color, and they were really paving new ground. And uh, I thought, wow, they are the future, and I should be working for them. Hmm. I went to Fieldcrest and uh, arranged an interview and went through the process. I don't remember how many people I saw at this point, but I saw quite a few people. And, uh, and at the end, they said, well, we'd love to have you here, except we don't have a position for you. So if you're willing to come here and just kind of kick around until something opens up, uh, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you here. So I, I took the plunge and left a pretty secure position at Canon and went to an unknown at Fieldcrest. Wow. Um, so, but, but I wanted to be with the industry leader, what I thought was the innovator in the industry. And you define that more as what they were doing as opposed to scale, like who's winning today. You, you were looking at five years out, who do I think is going to win? Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It, it was not, it was definitely not size. Canon was, was the big elephant in the room and Fieldcrest was this struggling innovator who was trying to find a path. Hmm. But I knew that eventually they would find it. So I, I went to I went with Fieldcrest and I did kick around for a couple of months. And then some really respected uh, person that was the head of uh, was a product manager in the blanket department was going on a two week vacation. And they said, well, Jack, would you just kind of sit at his desk and try to keep things moving uh, and do the best you can? So I spent that, those two weeks there. And uh, this fellow's name was John Foster. And he came back from vacation. And the head of the firm asked him, well, John, uh, are you caught up? And he said, there was nothing here for me to do. <laughs> this kid uh, is good. <laughs> uh, so they elevated John Foster to the head of the towel department, which was the big department in the company. And they put me in to his position on a permanent basis. Uh, so I really jumped probably five years ahead of where I should have been. Wow. Um, it, it was just, it was just a stroke of good luck. Uh, and I know oh, maybe you earned it, but, but you, you just were fortunate to be there. So I took that spot and, uh, it was the head of the blanket department was a fellow by the name of Reddy Grubbs. And he was the most disorganized person you have ever met in your life. <laughs> but he could sell anything. Huh. I mean, he had a terrific personality and he was late for every appointment. He was late for every flight. 
So I really looked upon my assignment as trying to keep ready organized. Huh. It was an impossible job, <laughs> but, but I, but I, I, I guess I filled it okay. Uh, and uh, about a year later, um, Fieldcrest was doing uh, a lot of innovative things in the product area, but they also were doing something very interesting in the catalog, in the advertising and sales promotion area. They, you know, all the big retailers the, you know, Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue and all the, all the big ones all over the country would do their catalogs at their white sale period, which was January and August. And they would put elaborate catalogs together and put them out either direct mail or through, through the newspaper distribution. And they would do an unbelievable amount of business off of those catalogs. Hmm. But the smaller retailer in the secondary markets uh, weren't able to justify putting a catalog together. So Fieldcrest said, oh, we're going to put a catalog together for you and you'll be able to put your name on it. And, uh, and we'll also coordinate other suppliers of like mattress pads and pillows and other other things that that Fieldcrest didn't make and I would I was asked to launch that program for the company and it it gave me exposure to all of the secondary retailers in all the markets all over the country and I also worked with the other manufacturers to include them in the catalog. But basically what it did for Fieldcrest is it assured them that they would have all of the basic lines in those retailers. So it would be white sheets and solid colored towels, which generally Fieldcrest would not be able to get placed. Hmm. They would do all the fashion items, but they wouldn't do the basics in those in those accounts and this assured them because it was in the catalog you had to carry it so huh. it 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 was kind of forced distribution without the retailer even realizing that it was happening so they basically they basically inserted themselves in the supply chain and in do it like as an advertising hub and then in doing so assured themselves of distribution Yes, is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. That's super um, smart. But it but it was a uh, a method to gain distribution through a not your normal product presentation, but it was through an advertising vehicle, which these accounts really needed, and hmm. they were very successful in running these catalogs. I mean, they were doing business that they would have never expected to do. So they were very supportive and it allowed Fieldcrest to get additional things placed because they had such confidence in the company. Hmm. Why do you think, I don't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry, but I, I just have a thought. Why do you think like Fieldcrest was an innovator in the, um, 
you said the fashion area, right? And now they're coming yeah. out with this innovative concept within sort of a way to get distribution. Was there an ethos in that company that was very like innovation focused? Did it come from one guy? Sort of how did that, why did that company do both those things? Yeah, it was, it was, it came down to an individual who was the head of the company, head of the sales and marketing division of the company, huh. uh, which was based in New York, uh, that did those things. He was a very, very uh, innovative, strategic guy who would think way ahead of everybody else. Huh. Um, and his, his name was Frank Green, and he was really primarily my mentor. And about a year later, or maybe a year and a half later, uh, he left Fieldcrest and went with Lon Venn, Charles of the Ritz, which was acquired by the ER Squibb Company, a medical company that bought uh, the Lon Venn, Charles of the Ritz in the cosmetic and fragrance field. And... Uh, uh, so he, he was lured away from Fieldcrest, uh, by Squibb to take control of the Lon Van Charles of the Ritz company. Hmm. He approached me about maybe several months after he was there. And he said, Jack, I'd like you to join me at Lon Van Charles of the Ritz and you would be head of the fragrance division. And it was big names. And it was Lon Venn, Arpege, My Sin, Band de Soleil, Jean de Tay. These were all brands that were in the fragrance division. Hmm. Uh, and I said, uh, well, Frank, I'm, I'm flattered that you would even consider me for this, but I'm not sure I'm prepared for it. And he said, you'll figure it out. <laughs> And uh, I worked for, uh, I, I, I went in as a, as a division manager, uh, again, catapulting me years ahead of where I should have been at that stage. Um, just, just because, uh, I got lucky. Yeah. And, but you're making, when I hear you tell this story, Jack, you're making your own luck. What do you think about you? It seems to me like, like you were solving problems for the people above you in different ways, right? You, you mentioned that you figured out how to get that guy organized that you worked for. And there's obviously something that makes people see that you're worth taking a chance on. I mean, was it something in your background? Do you think it was your football career? There, there must have been something in you that understood how to accomplish a goal. No, I, I, think, I think more than anything, it was... I was a hard worker and I would adapt. Hmm. Whatever the situation took, I would try to figure that out and I would move in that direction. I was pretty flexible. Uh, I just wanted to find the right path to be successful for the brands and the projects that I was handling. I wanted them to be successful and I was willing to go in whatever direction it took to get there. Um, so in, 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 uh, in, at Lon Van Charles of the Ritz, I worked for, I, I was the boss to some very powerful 
senior people that were probably resentful that I was even there. But somehow I figured a way to get along with them and to use them effectively. And I think over time, they recognized that and kind of accepted it. Hmm. Um, But to be honest with you, Bill, I hated the business. (laughs) (laughs) Every morning I would wake up and I would go to work not looking forward to it, mainly because the business was full of enormous egos. Everybody thought they were the next Charles Refson or the next Estee Lauder or thought they already were. (laughs) And uh, I would spend all day trying to get people to work together. They, there was a, not a room big enough for the egos that were in that room. And I had to figure out how to try to get them to put their egos aside and to try to work together for a common goal. But I got to tell you, it was a very frustrating experience. So after three years of that, I went to Frank Green, who I admired immensely. And I said, Frank, I have to tell you, I really don't care for this business. Uh, And I think I'm going to try to leave and find something that is more compatible with me. And he said, Jack, I feel the same way. (laughs) I can't afford to move. (laughs) So good luck. So I wrote to all the people uh, in the industry, in the home furnishings industry, that occupied the same position as Fieldcrest in their respective categories. Because I loved Fieldcrest and their positioning. And I I actually did write them too, but I think going back to uh, your former employee is more always more difficult. So I wrote to Henradon Furniture. I wrote to Lennox, China and Crystal. I wrote to probably seven or eight different companies Hmm. occupied leadership positions in their respective product categories. So I I heard from, I can't remember the exact number, but I heard back from maybe five of the eight, had interviews with uh, a number of them. And I ended up going with Lennox, China and Crystal. Hmm. And I remember, uh, you know, my wife, Penny, and I remember coming home from that interview and I said, Penny, I've been presented with a really unique opportunity to join Lennox, China and Crystal. And she said, oh, I'm really excited for you. I just didn't know that you would be able to secure that. And I said, but it is going to require a relocation. And she said, oh, well, we've talked about maybe a relocation would be a good experience for the family. So I'm fully supportive of that. And she said, where? (laughs) Oshkosh, Wisconsin. (laughs) And she said, oh, my, without a a loss of a beat, 
She said, oh, my goodness, what did you do wrong? <laughs> I said, well, nothing yet, but that's probably ahead of me. And so off we went. We packed five kids, a uh, canary, a gerbil, and two dogs in the <laughs> old uh, uh, station wagon, got a U-Haul it uh, to drag behind us, and off we went from New Jersey to Wisconsin. And just to give some context, Penny's whole family was in New Jersey at the time, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so, not an easy so, sell, Jack. <laughs> and, and so was mine. Yeah. So was mine. Um, it's a big risk from a lifestyle um, standpoint. But we, we got out there, and I think six months after we were there, we looked at each other and said, oh, why hadn't this happened sooner? Hmm. This is a great uh, lifestyle. I mean, there there is uh, there's still the hard work ethic is still alive in in in, uh, in the Midwest. Patriotism is still alive in the Midwest, and people were so open and so receptive. I can remember uh, a customer that would come out from the East Coast. And they said, I'd fly from New York to Chicago, and the person next to me would never say a word. He said, then I would get on the flight from Chicago up to Oshkosh, and I couldn't shut the person up next to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Midwest, <laughs> so the Midwest is a heck of a place. I mean, just yeah. as, as far as, you know, what's funny is when I moved there, People ask, why are you going there? And I, I honestly, I mean, I grew up in Southeast Florida. I thought Chicago was a bit of a cow pasture before I, I got off the airplane and saw it. I mean, that's how ignorant I was. And then I got there and what a life-changing experience to have. I mean, I sort of, I feel like I became a man in the Midwest and to, uh, it's, it's an incredible part of the world. Michigan, Wisconsin, I mean, Chicago, it's incredible. There, there is a, a lifestyle, and I had heard that before I went there, and I said, ah, that's, that's a lot of crap, you know. Yeah. But when I got there, wow, it does exist. There is an openness. There is a, a work ethic. There is patriotism. It's all alive and well out there, and, and I, I just, we just enjoyed that so much as a family, and- I really was stimulated by my time at Lennox Candles. Um, they what they did is they took the head of Lennox Candles and uh, moved him back to New Jersey. They were based in Trenton, New Jersey. Awful, awful place. But <laughs> uh, but uh, Lennox was the shining light there, and. They made him the head of the China and Crystal Division. And I said, wow, if this is a grooming ground for the top spot in the whole business, I'm up to this. I, 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 I'm going hmm. to take that on and see, see if I can grow with it. So uh, we, we had a lot of success. We expanded our distribution. We expanded our product lines. Uh, we 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 did some really really good things, and it showed in our market share. And 
So I think about, I was there about two to three years and Lennox came to me and said, oh, Jack, we're ready to give you your next big opportunity. Wait, before we go on there, I got to ask you something. What do you think about your process there uh, enabled you to gain the market share? Was it something about your team? Was it something about how you focused on pe- on your customer? I mean, what did you guys do better than the rest of the people? Because it, it seems somewhat commoditized, the product you're selling, right? But you won. So was there something yeah, but, that you but, were doing unique? But I, I think I took the Fieldcrest experience on how do you become the fashion leader? Hmm. And you, it was interesting. Back then, candles were basically white. Hmm. And we introduced colored candles. We introduced scented candles. Uh, we, we, did, we went into the soap business. It, it was interesting. The ca- candle business, how Lennox got into it, was they, they, were, the, they were a major wax supplier out in the Midwest and really providing wax to the paper industry and to the cheese industry, which is big in Wisconsin, that they would wrap the, the, the cheeses and the barrels for aging with wax to keep the moisture out. And, uh, um, and then during world war two, there was a need for candles. So the U.S. government went out to all of the wax manufacturers and said, can you produce candles? And that's how they ended up getting into the candle business. And the first product line that was called Victrolite, which was was based on the war, the war winning huh. the war, and yeah, that, huh. that's the first retail line that they came out with. And so we took a pretty basic industry and really turned it, turned up the, the, uh, the fashion end of the business, you know, through colored candles, through scented candles, through candle holders. Uh, we expanded out the product line, working with other manufacturers, but all under the the uh, Lennox candle line. It's interesting, you know. You're talking, and and today's version of this, right, is is the land and expand model of a lot of software companies, right? Because what I'm hearing you say is basically product line extensions, products and product improvements, and entering tangential markets is sort of like at its core what you guys did really well. Yes, we did. We yeah. did. And That's we got cool. into and sp- specialty distributions. You know, we, we you know, the candle business was traditionally done through the department stores. All of a sudden we got into gift shops because we were offering scented products and you know, so it fit more what that what they were trying to offer. So we we got into different channels of distribution. We introduced a line for the uh, mass market for the Kmart's of the world, which was big back then. That was before Walmart became as big as it is today. But we did we we introduced a product line for the mass channels of distribution. Hmm. 
and and geared it towards very much commodity products, you know, packaged so that they had value. And so it, we we just expanded our distribution and uh, and our and our product line, and it and it worked. Were you on the leading edge of that? Like, so when you went to Kmart, were you selling against somebody else or were you offering a unique solution to them? Well, we were selling against somebody else, but the, they were real commodity people. Hmm. We convinced, uh, like Target stores was our first big hit in the, in the, because Target would look at a product line and try to differentiate themselves from the rest of the market. Still they, do. Throughout the store. Hmm. They do that. And so they recognized it in in this in the candle and uh, business and the, the accessories for candles. They recognized it and really gave it a lot of emphasis. And that because they emphasized it, that forced Walmart and and Kmart and and the Kohl's stores and so forth to start to look at the product line differently. Uh, so you, you, your success with one really forced the others to kind of catch up. Hmm. Uh, so we we kind of rode that wave, and. Uh, um, and then uh, Lennox approached me, uh, I don't know, two to three years into, the, into my tenure there and said, okay, Jack, we're ready to give you your next big opportunity. And Lennox was going into the jewelry business because it was the one business that had margins that were equal to the China and crystal business. And uh, so they didn't want to sacrifice margin, gross margins. So they looked at categories that they could get into that would hold those margins. And jewelry was one of those. Um, so they, they, they purchased the Keepsake Diamond Ring Company that was based in Syracuse, New York. And <clears throat> the... Uh, and I said, well, you know, that's interesting. I'm, I'm flattered that you're considering me for this, but could I go out and look at the company? And they said, well, of course you can. So I, I went out to Syracuse. And by the way, I, I had no, nothing against Syracuse. There are good people everywhere. You just have to find them. So, but I went out. And the idea was that <clears throat> this was a family-owned business. It was the Robbins family. And the, the deal was I was going to work for the Robbins family for one year. And then they were going to work for me for one year. And then after two years, they were going to ride off into the sunset and retire and enjoy their wealth. Um, so I, I went out there and I spent two days talking with the Robbins family and I, the language was exactly the same as the cosmetic and fragrance business. 
Mm. And I was like, no way am I going back here. (laughs) Uh, So I went back to Lennox and I said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm honored that you considered me for this, but I am not going to step back into an industry uh, that I really didn't enjoy. And I felt there was just a lot of similarities between the jewelry business and the cosmetic and fragrance business. Uh, lots of fashion, uh, lots of margin, enormous margins on their products. Um, and, uh, you know, like 90% margins. Uh, so they, you know, they didn't look upon efficiency and, you know, eliminating mistakes and, you know, efficient production. They never looked at that because they could afford to fall flat on their face. Hmm. And it didn't, it it almost didn't matter. That's Um, interesting. So they were not operating people. They were strictly marketing product people. And I I respect that. But in the end, you got to be a good operating business to be totally successful. And I, and I just didn't see that in either of those industries. And I just wasn't going to go back to that and be unhappy. So Lennox said, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and they were okay with it. Um, and they, as they assigned a, a press glass operation that they had down in Ohio under, under our division. Uh, so I continued to kind of grow. Uh, but after that, it became a real cat and mouse game with, with Lennox. You know, they would keep asking, what are your career aspirations? Are you willing to make a move? And I was like, oh, yes, of course, for the right thing. And it just, we, we, we danced all around the issue. So I decided that if we want to stay in Wisconsin, where we were very happy, then I should get into an industry that's based there. Hmm. And that that is that brings you to the paper business. Because um, Wisconsin, but most people don't realize this, is Wisconsin is the largest paper producing state in the country by a wide margin. Really? Um, yeah, and if, if people think of Maine and state of Washington and so forth, but Wisconsin absolutely produces as much paper as Maine and Washington put together. Wow, I always think uh, of dairy when I think of Wisconsin, right? And farming. Well, you do, uh, you do think of dairy and cheese, yeah. but but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of water in Wisconsin, yeah, right next to Minnesota. Uh, what the land of a thousand lakes or whatever it is. Um, so lots of water and there, you use a lot of water in paper making. It's really taking the pulp from the tree and mixing it with water. And then in the process, removing all the water and which leaves you with a sheet of paper that is all the wood fibers that have been integrated together. 
that's that's really the paper making process. It looks like uh, you you have an enormous uh, bin of of cream of wheat. Yeah, uh, and uh, as you've mixed the water and the and the pulp from the trees, and then you remove all that water through the paper machines, and uh, you end up with a sheet of paper. So at any rate, I uh, had met uh, a fella who was my age, and we actually skied together uh, out west a couple times. Uh, I, you know, I was not a very good skier, but Penny was. So uh, we would be invited to accompany uh, good skiing families, and they would tolerate me. Uh, uh, and uh, but I got to know this fella pretty well, and his family owned a paper business. They also got had gotten into consumer products, gift wrap, and some party supplies, napkins, plates, and so forth. And uh, uh, so he asked me if I would ever be interested in joining their family company. Uh, to run their consumer products business. And because he knew my Lennox experience and previous experience in the, in the textile business, so he knew I, I was familiar with consumer products. And uh, so I, I, I said, great, this is perfect for us. We wanna stay in, with, in Wisconsin uh you know you 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 have a good position that i think can really be expanded how did you think through the position i don't mean to cut you off i'm just listening to you and thinking like when you're assessing who to join how did you think through these guys are or was it was it like on a on a us basis was it just on a local basis how did you think through that it it was more on a on a fairly local basis but I looked at them and said, they are good operators. Okay. And the product line is pretty, pretty weak. Hmm. Um, and that was your skill set. Yeah. And that was my skill set. So as long as you had good, efficient production and you could inject some of your product experience into that, that was an interesting combination. Hmm. So I, 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 I joined the, the firm and they gave me a lot of leeway um, uh, because they were really primary paper people. And, but in the paper industry, which was very much like the textile industry, you needed to run your mills 24 seven in order to make a profit on them. So the, I, I liked their mentality. I liked their, their uh, focus on operations and cost reduction, cost efficiency. Uh, and, and I thought that my product experience and you know expanding the product lines, making them more fashionable, uh, could fit pretty well with their operating experience. Hmm. And 
and it and it worked it worked we we really set the gift wrap business on its end i mean we had, we introduced uh uh designer uh inspired gift wrap we we introduced designer inspired party goods napkins plates and cups we aligned ourselves with disney so we were able to offer the disney characters on uh, party goods for children's birthdays so you could have birthday with mickey mouse yeah huh. or, uh, i mean it, it, let me tell you the disney company was really difficult to work with. <laughs> I think they still are, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. They they thought so much of themselves. <laughs> they thought they could control every process, including what you were good at. Yeah. Well, to be fair, they have a lot of a uh, lot of swag when it comes to moving product, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they do. They do. Um and and but I, their royalties were were fair kind of industry average, but their demands on how you complied with their their dictates in colorations and how things get presented was, uh, <laughs> they were unmerciful. That's uh, interesting that you said their royalties were fair. The, I, I sort of understand why they were so anal about how you did the colors. I mean, that's their whole brand, right? They need everything to be the same. It's very much McDonald's-y you know, in a different way. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They, they were very, very protective of their brand. Yeah. And, and every, every character that represented them, hmm. uh, just as they are on their theme parks and movies or anything else that they do. You, it, it, it is very, very thorough in the way they research it in the, in the way they present it. And they they want any franchisee to employ the same standards that they do on your individual product. So we eventually kind of figured that out and and uh, developed a good relationship with them. And they probably gave us a lot more leeway than we deserved. Um, but I think we understood their 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 approach to to the to the marketplace well it sounds like you probably earned the leeway that they gave you it sounds like they probably come in very hard with demands and then if you can satisfy them then you become a true partner right and then once you're a partner they can let you kind of go a little bit they just need to know <laughs> that you can be their partner yeah <laughs> yeah hmm. that's interesting well we we uh we we ended up buying a major gift wrap company down in Tennessee. Uh, and I was in the process of moving people down to run the Tennessee operation and to handle the integration with us up in Wisconsin. And I eventually was going to move to Tennessee myself. Um, but something happened uh, in the in the interim, before I actually made the move myself, although I spent a lot of time down there, um, we were approached uh, by a firm in 
Milwaukee that was beginning to open up factory outlet stores. Hmm. And uh, we always ran every year at Thanksgiving that we would start it the Friday after Thanksgiving and we would run it through the following weekend. So we would run it about eight or nine days. And we, we, we conducted a warehouse sale. So it would be all the products that got returned to us from the retailers, mm-hmm. overproduction, seconds, you know, any, anything that we happened to have mm-hmm. was sitting in the warehouse. We would run this warehouse sale and it was phenomenal. I mean, we would do five or $600,000 worth of business in those eight or nine days. And we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> we would run a, a couple of bell, billboards in town, we'd do oh, a couple funny. of really hokey radio commercials, and we would hawk the, the, uh, the, the warehouse sale. And then we would, we would uh, rent some cash registers and so forth and so on. And wow, the people just came out of the woodwork. The first year we did it, it was like, what are we going to do with all these people? Hmm. So we, we, uh, we hired, we rented a couple of clown costumes and we hired a juggling team. And they would perform as these long lines formed at the cash registers to keep them entertained. Yeah, so people wouldn't leave or whatever. Standing online, right. And we still had a lot of people that just left their product right right on the line and and left because they they were fed up with waiting. Did you make any margin on those or was it just a good way to get rid of working capital? Well... we made a little margin, but not yeah. much. Um, and it was much more to open up space, get rid of product, you know, turn product into cash. Yeah, no, it's smart. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I I don't know what people did with all the product. <laughs> well, I don't think Americans <laughs> consume with the intent to use. I think they just like a deal. It's, yeah, it's never changed. That, that was the case. I remember standing at the cash register one time and and one uh, husband said to his wife, well, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And she said, oh, I'm going to put it in the closet right next to the stuff I bought last year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just in case we need it. <laughs> so this guy, this, guy, this guy called me from Milwaukee and he said, we're opening up a, uh, we're going to, Op- uh, we're going to buy a uh, an abandoned factory in a small town just north of Milwaukee. I can't remember the name of the town right now, but um, and he said we would like you to open a store in our mall. Hmm. I said, well, we don't operate stores; we sell retailers. So I could speak to one or two of them, and maybe they'd be interested in opening a store in your mall. And he said, 
no, no. He said, my wife is from Appleton, Wisconsin, hmm. and she drags me to your warehouse every year. <laughs> and she, and I said, and I said, <laughs> I want you to operate your warehouse sale in my mall. Huh? And, and I said, I, I really, we don't, that isn't what we do. Our main focus is, you know, product and distribution to retailers. And that we do that once a year. We have no idea what we're doing. We kind of stumble our way through it. And he would call me every week and feel kept getting better and better and better. There you go. <laughs> until, until it was kind of like, oh, well, I, this is a no brainer. We can fail at this and still come out. Okay. Huh? So we opened a, a, a store in his mall in this, in this relatively small town outside of Milwaukee. And it was really successful. We think because everything we did was on the back of an envelope, right? We, We'd ship <laughs> all the math and there. whatnot. We'd, we'd figure out how to price it, you know. And and uh, then a year later, this same developer was opening two more malls, one in Muskegon, Michigan, and one in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Right, hey Jack, real quick, real quick. Can I just, uh, I just want to clarify something. So were you running the warehouse strategy in the mall store? Like, was it a, was it a discount? type strategy or was it your it, own unique store at sort of it, full price it was uh, no no it was a, a discounted store okay um, and uh we 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 uh, we kind of massaged the warehouse concept to a permanent location uh but we still did it very much based on value proposition was it scattered out or was it very well, um, what, what am I trying to think? Like when a, when a merchandise, like when, when you walk into a retail concept, was it more, you have to sort of pick and look at what, look for what you are, they call it a treasure hunt experience these days. Like, was it sort of treasure hunty or did you have everything very, uh, merchandised and easy to find? Well, I think, I think we had it merchandised and fairly easy to find um but but it was very much based on a value proposition hmm. um and 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 to be really highly recognized as such i mean it was like oh well we're gonna buy this whether we need it or not yeah this this is such a good value you know we should take advantage of it that's super interesting. That's still yeah. working these days. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, we we uh, this this operator opened a couple of stores one year later. One in Muskegon, Michigan, and the second one in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is about halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago. So it had a big draw from both of those locations, and. By golly, the the stores, the second stores, the second and third store, better than the first huh. because they had much more traffic at them, and and we were a big traffic generator. Uh, 
because we had a frequency of purchase that was built around occasions, right? You mm. would you would you would buy your party goods for children's birthdays, adult birthdays, uh, wedding showers, weddings, you know, gift wrap for all of those occasions, and then of course the big at, at Christmas. So we we generated a lot of traffic, a lot more than the volume that that our store would justify. Hmm. But and the and the mall developers recognized that uh, uh, they I mean we got a little help by us telling them. <laughs> but yeah, uh, well you should you should broadcast <laughs> that right and then ask for a rent concession. <laughs> What was your com- competition doing? Do you know, did anybody else have a vertically integrated sort of distribution? No, we like were, uh, we were alone in the, in, in our product category. Um, it's interesting how many of your early businesses, and it can't be coincidence, but were innovators in what they were doing or the way they were doing it. Yeah. Well, but, but to be honest with you, we stumbled into those things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it was like, but, but I, I, I did, I did find if you, if you're, if you got lucky, you better take advantage of it. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, it's not going to always happen for you. Uh, so I, 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 I think I did, I was conscious that this was an opportunity that maybe you should really try to take advantage of. So we, we, we opened up these stores in the in the uh, in these new malls that were even bigger and better than the ones before. Uh, I think in the Kenosha store, we did a million dollars in the first year. Hmm. I, it was like that's impossible. We could possibly do that <laughs> in Kenosha. <laughs> in Kenosha, but it was a, a really heavy traffic mall. And that's when these factory outlet malls were really coming into their own. And then additional developers got into it, mall developers. Uh, and th- they, they would contact us. We're saying, oh, we've looked at your store in, in, you know, in Kenosha and Muskegon. And we want that's, we want your store in our mall in, Cincinnati or where wherever they happen to be. Um, So all of a sudden we had a business almost by accident. Uh, And I'm saying, okay, we've been lucky up to now. We've been operating this thing. I I remember I bought in a product manager that was in the uh, in the party goods division. And I said, you know, you really are going to have a terrific opportunity. Uh, you're going to be able to operate a retail store or several of them. And when you, and you'll be able to work at this at nights and in your spare time. And by the way, we're not going to pay you anything. Extra. <laughs> Aren't you happy? But, but what a chance to make your mark. <laughs> and so we did that for a couple of years, and then I'm saying, "Oh, you know, we really don't know what we're doing. I should hire somebody with retail experience to come in and operate this 
this division. So I hired somebody from Target stores, hmm. young, young guy, who, uh, who I thought was really smart and aggressive. And he came in and operated our retail division. Why do you call uh, the paper factory? Who else did you interview from? Because Target's a very interesting choice. Because at that time, if I, if I'm not mistaken, Target was like it was West Coast focused, right? And like very innovative in how they did retail. Uh, was yeah, it just I, something I, about how he looked at things that clicked with you? Actually, they were Midwest focused. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were out of Minneapolis. Oh, that yeah, that's right. That's where their stadium yeah. is. Yeah, and uh, so. And they were a good customer of ours hmm. uh, in in the in the in the in in the retail you know division. So I, I, I was I, I admired the way that they approached things. Uh, they were very focused on what they stood for. They studied locations real well. Um, so they they had a lot of elements. That I just thought you'd 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 like to have in your in your business. Um, so I we just happened to I I think I used a recruiter, uh, and he identified this person, and who was a regional manager I think with with uh, with Target at the time I don't remember the the region but he had you know uh, maybe a dozen stores underneath him so. He was, you know, moving up the ladder, and uh, so we we somehow attracted him, and all of a sudden we got up. We had a business. We got up to maybe thirty stores. We had, you know, maybe twenty five million dollars of business in that division, and I it always worried me that we were competing with our customers. And that always made me uncomfortable. I was not on the board of the of this company I was with, Fox Valley Corporation, but uh, I attended most of their meetings uh, as a division head. And I continued to warn them that we were growing this business but we were really taking a big chance because it could be conceived, uh, perceived as competing with our customers. And, and truthfully, that was the case. Uh, yeah. But in all my years, I got approached only one time about those stores. And it was, I was at Walgreens working with the gift wrap buyer and they were a big customer of ours and uh, we were making a product presentation for whatever the season was and Vern Brunner who was the probably the best merchant in the entire country walked by the office and said oh Jack when you finish with Bob please stop by my office Oh, of course, Vern. <laughs> you don't ever ask me to stop by your office. Um, and uh, so I walk in and he said, Jack, my wife dragged me up to Kenosha this mm. weekend. 
And wow, there is a lot of product in that paper factory store up there. Hmm. You should be really careful where you're selling your product so that it doesn't interfere with your normal retail distribution. I said, Vern, I got to tell you something. We own that store. And he looked at me and he said, oh, that wasn't the answer I expected. Hmm. I said, well, we do it for a couple of reasons, Vern. And I think these are reasons that help you. I said, one, when you return merchandise after the Christmas season that you can't sell, we don't know what to do with it. We could sell it to a closeout artist who would probably be right next to a dozen of your stores and Hmm. interfere with your business. This allows us to control where it is. Secondly, we we, uh, test retail concepts and designs in our stores before they reach your counter. So Hmm. they've been market tested and probably have a lot better opportunity for success. And he said, oh, oh, I, I think I understand. Um, uh, just, just be careful. Yeah. He never asked me how many stores we had. Hmm. <laughs> I would have had to answer him honestly, but he never asked that question. Hmm. But I told that story to the, to the board of, of the company I was working for. And they said, Jack, you really actually need to sell that division. Hmm. It's, it's, uh, we're, it's too vulnerable uh, for our core business. So they wanted me to work with a investment firm, an investment banking firm out of uh, Minneapolis. And I did. I went over there. Um, and worked with them. And and one thing they said was, would the management of that division have any interest in buying it? And I said, well, I I just don't think they have the capability or the resources. They just don't have the scope to to do something like that. But interesting idea. And, but I think we should continue to pursue other buyers. So that night I got home and I said, gee, maybe that's something that I could do. Hmm. And so I went to my boss the next day and I, I said, I was working with this investment firm and they, and they thought about maybe selling to the management team. And I said, I, I, I think I'd like to look into that. Hmm. He was irate. Yeah, I'd imagine. He was I feel like I'm losing one of my best people so, and my stores. <laughs> so upset. And I said, oh, Bob, I, I, I would draw that idea. Uh, I'm, happy. <laughs> I'm happy where I am. You've been very supportive. Uh, it was just an idea. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to shelve it. <laughs> he, he calmed down 
And then that was on a uh, late, late in the week. And uh, the following Monday, he called me and he said, Jack, I've talked to a number of our directors over the weekend and they feel as though you deserve this opportunity. Hmm. However, there are two contingencies. One, we want to maintain 25% ownership of the business. Yeah, I figured that would be. So that we can still enjoy the benefits of it, but not be, you know, exposed to the ownership end. And secondly, you need to take six months and groom your successor hmm. so that we have lots of security in, in, in our business. It's a smart company you worked for. Like yeah. structuring it that way makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. It allows you to get your incentives and fulfillment. They state they keep an equity interest. You groom somebody. That's smart way of looking at the world. It's win-win. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this, this guy was a very, very smart guy. Uh, still is. And uh, so I said, I, I think those conditions are great. One, I need your money <laughs> to handle this transaction. So that 25% is going to come in handy. Yeah. I said, you know, I, th I think I know who should succeed me now. And it's a matter of just getting him into that, into that space and getting him comfortable with it. So, and he, he knew who I was talking about. So that's the way we proceeded. So all of a sudden I was in charge of a retail business. I mean, wow, what a shift for you, huh? <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was, but, but I liked the diversity. I liked the, uh, the, the, the challenges that came with something, something new. Uh, so we ended up building that business from like maybe 30 stores when we took it over up to in and in, in a fairly short period of time maybe four years we built it to 130 stores hmm. we had a major business on our hands how much leverage did you use to do it a fair amount but yeah, i'd imagine but these stores would be profitable at the end of the first year. Yeah. There's it's still going on, Jack. Like this company, I mean, five below, those guys are killing it. Naali's these things. It's amazing the returns that you can get from these little concepts that work like that. Yeah. So th this this was I mean, we fell into it, but man, we knew how to take advantage of it. And we we built a terrific relationship with all of the developers in that business. So they would come to us to operate stores in their malls. So because we created a lot of traffic, a lot of repeat traffic that there many of their other stores did not, the apparel stores who were the big volume guys, you know, you would go up and you would buy your seasonal needs and you may not come back to that store again for, four months. Yeah. In the meantime, you would come back to our stores multiple times in that four months. So we were a real traffic builder, not so much a volume leader, 
but a traffic builder of repeat traffic in, in those malls. And we, we figured out how to milk that position pretty good. Did you expand from, like, was your strategy to be dense in a region or were you just sort of spread out whoever would give us the best deal? I mean, there has to, in order to be that successful, you've got to have a strategy. So how did you sort of think through that? We, we went with who, with the developers, wherever they went, they would, they would open up where they could get a certain amount of pass by traffic. So they would it was very much like the uh, the Kenosha location. Uh, we put it between Chicago and Milwaukee. We know there are a lot of people going down 94, I think it is, uh, on that highway. They would put them between Cleveland and Cincinnati. They would put them, hmm. you know, they, they would be very strategic on where they pick their locations close enough to a big market so they had access to large numbers of people but far enough out so that it was a destination hmm. uh, and it was somewhat protected from the you know the major retailers that would be in the in the larger markets that's interesting do you follow dollar general at all i did i do yeah yeah they have they have a very cool real estate strategy it's somewhat similar, a little bit different, but somewhat similar. Oh yeah, I, I really admire Dollar General. They yeah. they have done a terrific job of of uh, positioning their stores, positioning their customer, uh, and then taking real advantage of downturns in the economy. Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, they are very good at that. To expand out their customer base, all of a sudden now you see. Outside of a Dollar General are parked BMWs and Mercedes. <laughs> yeah. So they, th- those people that get out of those cars don't want you to see them. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, I, I mean, we're in a smaller town, you and I, uh, and it's, it's a very, we have two locations here that I drive by and they're very nice. I mean, I sort of think about stopping in there. Uh, I do go in there occasionally, but it's a, it's a very cool concept that they built out. And some of those Wisconsin towns, it's the nicest store in the town by far. Oh, yeah. And I don't, it's not because the rest are not nice. It is a very nice store that they built. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in some cases it, the only store. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's interesting. So it, I so, guess I never knew that you were, I, I knew that you were with the paper company, but I guess I didn't realize that you were on the retail side and, well, and we, expanded we, that way. It, it, we stumbled into it. I mean, we really just stumbled into it. Um, all because of this guy that called me every week until the deal got so good you couldn't turn it down. Huh. But we built that up to uh, maybe 130 stores and Gibson greeting card company who was the number three guy in the greeting cards it was hallmark it was american greetings and then it was gibson greetings those were the three primary players in the in the card business um and they began to open up some of their own stores their outlet stores and so the the head of of uh 
Gibson Greeting called me one day and he said, uh, Jack, um, as you know, we operate a few stores. We op actually operate 10 stores. Five stores are where you're located, near where you're located. And five stores, you don't have a store near us. And we like the business we do in our five stores where you're not around. But we struggle in the five stores where hmm. we're around you. Hmm. And, and I said, well, I think the, the deal is you should not open any more stores. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, we thought that we ought to buy you. Huh. And rather than compete with you, we should buy you hmm. and let you operate the stores. And I said, well, we don't have any interest in that. We're we're having a good time. We're growing. Uh, we, we just don't have any interest in in selling. Every everything is too good here right now. And uh, so he said, well, OK, but we're going to continue to open stores. And I said, well, I think you remember what we said. Don't open stores near us. Yeah. Because I said, to be honest with you, when you do open a store near us, we suffer for the first year. Our business declines for that first year. But after that, it rebounds and comes back up to its normal re, uh, volume levels and continues to grow from that point on. So we know we can we can suffer through your openings and come out okay in the long run, but we'd rather not have to face that. Um, so he said, well, I, you know, I, we, we operate that as a separate division. So um, uh, I, I can't tell you what we're going to do. Um, when you were doing this, Jack, did you have like a number two that was your COO? Because this retail business that you're running is very operations focused, right? And oh, I yeah. mean, I've always known you as a really good operator, but I'm just trying to think through like when, I, I mean, I know that it's hard to say when something happens, it just, just sort of becomes who you are, right? But like, I didn't know, you know, you started out in product, right? How'd you get so good at efficient operations? It sounds like something you were always very interested in. Well, I was because you started out in the textile business and then yeah. spent time in the paper business. Those two businesses are both highly operational forecast focused. You have to be efficient or you will not be a survivor. Yeah. You need to run those mills 24-7. You need to operate them extremely efficiently. And uh, they're all unionized. So you you needed to figure out how to work with the union hmm. to, to meet your ends. Uh, so I, I, I spent a lot of time in two industries that were highly operationally forecast focused. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and I learned a lot from, from the people that I worked with there. Um, and also the guy that came over from target stores, 
was a very operationally focused person. He was not a product person. He was, uh, you know, store operations focused. Hmm. So uh, we, we, you know, learned a lot from him and followed, uh, followed his, his lead um, because distribution, uh, inventory controls, you know, margin controls, all of that was, you know, critically important in the, in that in that industry. Um, so at any rate, this guy from Gibson, a little bit like the developer, uh, the mall developer in Milwaukee, kept calling me <laughs> every year, every every couple of months. The deal kept getting better and better and better until you finally said. Oh, well, maybe we ought to do this. And he he guaranteed you that you would be that you would continue to operate the business. They would fold those 10 Gibson stores right underneath the paper factory. And then we would operate the retail division, uh, you know, on it on its on its own. Um, so uh, eventually, we sold it to them uh, at a at a very very nice uh, uh, profit margin. Uh, it, it was it was a great it was a great sale. Yeah, and you were levered, right? So that can be life changing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we had actually pretty much delevered by then. We were operating on our own cash flow. Uh, because we could we could get these stores profitable within the first year, yeah, a major major uh, uh, advantage that we had. Um, there there wasn't a lot of long term investment that you had to wait for a return on. Uh, you could get it fairly fast in these stores. Um, so at any rate, uh, I. I, I agreed, and uh, we continued to operate the stores, and we we grew, absorbed their ten stores, grew their stores, and we got another big product line in our stores, the Gibson Card line, as well as a number of other products that they had. Just like Hallmark, they went into heavily into product extensions, and so we would get all of that product into our stores and it it gave us another big push for you know for volume um did you roll your equity into the transaction or get earnouts or anything like that or did they just uh, pay you uh primarily paid uh but we we did get a little incentive to grow the business but the primary uh uh, was was on the initial payout for the business. It's interesting something about you that, you know, the, the private equity guys that I talked to said about you, and I'm just thinking about it as you say this, they said it, it, one of the things that's so hard to find about replacing someone like Jack <clears throat> is finding somebody that wants to work as hard as he worked once they're, you know, wealthy enough that their needs are met. And even just hearing you talk about this, I mean... I know who you are. I 
you went in to grow an operation that you had less equity skin in, right? I mean, how did you keep motivated in that? Or was it just that you enjoyed the game so much? I, I think it's, and that's a good phrase. I, I, I think I did enjoy the game so much. Yeah. It just stimulated me to, to be growing, to taking care of people. I remember one people, one person said to me, Oh, Jack, it must be so fulfilling to have so many people work for you. And I said, well, that isn't the way I look at it. I'm looking at it like I am working for a lot of people. Hmm. I am responsible for providing success to a lot of people. That's cool that you say that. I mean, you know, for anyone that doesn't know Jack's family and like I, part of the thing that I love so much about you is that is how you look at the world. You know, it's, it, you're a very admirable human. Uh, and, and to know that, uh, I don't know. It's it's wild. Uh, it's been fun getting to know you over the years. I'm super fortunate. How much how much of having Penny at home, taking care of the kids, enabled you to to really focus on the game? Oh, a lot, a lot. Um, I I I was so immersed in the businesses that I was in that I probably wasn't as good a father as I should have been. Um, but I knew Penny had the home front so under control that I could afford to devote a lot of time to the, the businesses. I, I actually became the disciplinarian. Oh, mm-hmm. was like, wait until your dad gets, <laughs> you're going to really pay the price. And so I would walk in the door and these kids were shaking. Oh, dad's here. We're yeah. in trouble. <laughs> that's an unfortunate position for you to end up in. Because that's well, not who you are, but it's who you had to be at the time, right? Yeah, but I th- but I think I overcame it, you know. That, yeah. You know. Well, yeah. I I think looking at what you guys do now as a family, it's pretty evident that uh it worked out. So what happened? So you went to it was Gibson, right? And you're working with them. I had no idea that you did. Uh, it was a. It was basically. I mean, today's version is like a LBO type private equity transaction that turns into a retail expansion. I had no idea that that was what you did. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, I stumbled into a lot of things. Yeah. But well, you did a good job when you had the opportunity. But yeah, you you took advantages of the opportunities. I I think of kids today. You know, like they're changing companies so frequently. Yeah. I'm thinking like, oh, ah, how can they churn like that? And then I look back at my own career. I did it. (laughs) (laughs) I I moved around a lot and churned, but I didn't think about it so much then as, wow, this is uh, a way to get ahead. I just look at it as like, Okay, this is the next big challenge. Let's do this well, and we'll take it from there. I think that one of the things that may have, I don't know if it changed or the perception changed or whatever, but I I think that the feeling of the employee-employer relationship feels more transactional now. And maybe that's why people maybe frame it differently of how to get ahead and whatnot. I'm not sure. 
Yeah, but I, I, you know, I, I think you're right, by the way. It is transactional, but you got to figure out a way to make it human. Yeah. I, I think the ones that combine transaction with human and incentivizing people and, and uh, appreciating people are the ones that are the most successful. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I'm one thing that's going to be interesting coming out of COVID is a lot of people are talking about, you know, how can we reduce office space and whatever? I don't know how they're going to train younger people to, you know, there's something about being together that enables the quality time for lack of a better term that a team needs to sort of train up younger people. I don't know how that's going to, transition whether or not people end up going to the office or whatever but that will be interesting to watch yeah i think that is going to be very interesting to watch and some somebody is going to figure out how you combine the remoteness with the closeness and how how you put those together in the right balance and they're going to be the ones that are really successful yeah do you think a lot of people say that change is happening so much quicker these days? Do you think that that's an accurate statement or do you think that it just feels quick all the time? I think it feels quick all the time. I think if you went back to the 1930s, people would say, things are happening so fast. I can't keep up with it. And then the same thing would be said in the 60s, in the 90s in the in the 2020 i i i think it's it's just all your perspective at that point in time yeah and it is it is it is happening fast and i think technology has probably made it even faster again uh but i but i think at, at any era People felt like, wow, things are moving fast. Yeah, that's how it feels to me. I mean, Buffett talks about this with the Industrial Revolution. Like, think about how fast that must have felt. And it's it's sort of always happened. But inertia tends to, things change slower than people perceive them to be changing. But they there, there is certainly an arc of change, right, that you can't stop. But I think it, it, people always, well, it seems to me that people tend to overestimate how quickly things are changing in the moment. Yeah. I, I think it's the people that accept change and figure out how to use it effectively are, are, are the ones that really make out the best. Yeah. When you were in your later career, you started to get into like medical devices and whatnot. Were those industries that changed faster than the industries that you were in previously, or did you focus on niches that didn't change as much uh no i think they did uh, they did change i i should i should probably s speed along and and get to that part of my career because i well i enjoyed the beginning so but the, <laughs> the second half is super interesting too well at any rate so we we have this uh the paper the paper factory we're growing it we get acquired by gibson greetings and we get all new product lines in and then we realized that we really should be working with other manufacturers to get their product into our stores. So we would work with the back to school industry, which was 
they're mm. paper related and complementary to and didn't didn't compete at all with our with our own product lines. So we expanded our appeal to the consumer through we got children's books. We did a real big uh, 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 deal with golden books uh, that had, you know, the green eggs and ham and all, all hmm. sorts of other really, really popular. Uh, That's a good book. Children's stories. And we struck a deal with them because they were based in Wisconsin. They were down, hmm. I think, in Racine, Wisconsin, which was where the the I can't remember the name of the publishing company, but they were part of a publishing company that was based out of Racine, and so we had a little bit of familiarity with them, and they were looking for an outlet for their for their overrun products and their seconds and and so forth that. So we we were able to turn that that production into a meaningful return for them. It it was uh, it was a real win win for for both parties. So we expanded the product lines and we we got really close to a number of other really key manufacturers in related products. Um, as it turns out, Gibson owned Clio Wrap, which is which was the largest gift wrap company in the world by far. Hmm. I mean, they were a three hundred million dollar company in exclusively in gift wrap, and they and Gibson owned them, and they were disappointed in their performance. So. The head of Gibson asked me, he said, well, Jack, you used to run Clio's largest competitor. Would you just mind going down to Memphis and spend two or three days with the with that business and with the management team? And if you could come back through Cincinnati, which is where Gibson was located, uh, headquartered, uh, and give me your insight, I would appreciate it. So I went down there and came back through Cincinnati. I gave him a couple of hour debrief uh, on, on my observations. And he said, oh, I never, I learned more about the Gibson, uh, uh, about the Clio gift wrap business in the last two hours than I've learned in the last 10 years. And I'm huh. in, that may be a little indictment of your management style. <laughs> that could be the problem. <laughs> he was a very hands-off guy. At any rate, hmm. so I left and went back up to Wisconsin. And the, the following week, he called me and he said, um, we would like you to go down and take over the Clio gift wrap business and do some of the things that you say need to be done there. And I said, well, that wasn't what I was thinking about. We're really having a good time growing the paper factory retail business. And I'm not sure I want to go back into that. But hey, at this point, 
all of our kids are out of the house. They're in school, they're in college. So it was maybe an opportunity that I could, I could do it without major disruption to the family. So I went down to Memphis and took over the Clio gift wrap company. And, and I'd say probably two weeks after I was there, I discovered major fraud that was going hmm. on in the company. Wow. Gibson was a public company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So when I discovered this fraud, they had to report it. Huh. And they, they, they had to uh, because it was a major happening. And they had to go back and restate their financials for several years. And really how I, it was a complete accident that I, I came upon this. Uh, Clio, which was a very seasonal business, maintained uh, public warehouses to store their product before they shipped it just, you know, uh, in like October before Christmas. And, uh, and so I would make it a point of every lunchtime, I would go out to a different warehouse just to get familiar with them. And so one day I walk into this 170,000 square foot warehouse. I mean, it's big, went on forever. And there was one person working there. And I said, you, do you handle this all yourself? And he said, oh, well, we don't have a lot of product that goes in and out of here. So I, I, I can handle it. And, and we, we hire temporary workers when we, when we have an influx of or outflux of product. So I said, well, let's just walk the warehouse. So I'm walking the warehouse and I open a box, big box that, and, and I, and I found Walmart pre-priced product. Hmm. I said the pre-price on this product was 99 cents. And I'm saying, wow, this product has no value whatsoever because the pre-price on that product today at Walmart stores is $1.79. Hmm. So what are we doing with this product? And the guy said, well, it just sits here. <laughs> hmm. It never moves. So I went back to the financial guy and I said, you know, this is what I encountered today. How is this carried on the books? And he said, uh, I hate to tell you, it's carried at full value. Mm. And I'm saying, hey, this product has no value whatsoever. I mean, we'd have to rewrap it to and reflecting today's uh, pre-price in order to have any value in it. So we'd have to put in extra value to maintain the current value. And, and he said, oh, yeah. And I said, listen, I want you to run a report to me for me that shows all of this product that 
may be overvalued. So he ran it. It was millions of dollars, mm. millions of dollars of product. And so I called the CFO at Gibson and I said, this is what I think is happening here. And he said, I want you next week to call a senior management leadership uh, meeting off campus so that you get all those people out of there and we're going to come in with a team. Mm. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Mm. So I, I did that and uh, he came in and he called me and he said, we got a major problem. Wow. And we're going to have to restate our earnings over X number of years because this has been going on for a long time. Did that stress you out a lot or was it just sort of like, I'm the guy that figured it out. And now we just sort of have to go among our business. That would stress me out to be in the middle of a public company <laughs> fraud. Well, I, even if you're not. I, and, you know, and I was alone. Penny yeah. was still up in Wisconsin. I was alone down in, uh, in, in Memphis. And, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, all I have to do is work. I mean, I'm working 15 hour days because I had nothing to go home to. Uh, and then you discover this thing. So I quickly put together a game plan for how to overcome this and how to get the business back on the right foot. So I went to the, I went to Cincinnati and I presented to select board members and the CEO of the company, a recovery plan that I'd said is going to take three years or an option is to do a quick fix and try to sell the business, which would probably take a year. Hmm. And they, they quickly said, we like the year plan. <laughs> uh, we want to get this thing behind us. So I, I, uh, I said, okay, let me, you know, detail out that plan just to make sure everybody's comfortable with it. And we're, we're going to execute against it. So I put this together and I went back and presented it to them and they said, Go for it. Um, so we put together a program and, and one year later, we sold the business. Wow. Uh, on time. Th on time and sold it for more than we felt like it was we could achieve. Um, and so everybody was very happy and they gave me a, a, a pretty big incentive to do this. Um, I mean, I enjoyed a percentage of the, 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 the sale, particularly if it was above a certain level, then my percentage even increased. So I did, I did really well on that. But meanwhile, I had gotten somebody in to run the retail operation, the kind of the number two person that was uh, under me. And 
when I, when we sold the gift wrap company, I, I felt like I can't go back and displace this guy <laughs> hmm. and make him the number two. I, I I think I've worked my way out of a job. <laughs> so I I went back to Wisconsin and uh, um, with with no job. And, uh, but, but fair amount of money in your pocket. So I, I wasn't destitute by any means. And, uh, and I, I actually contacted a few firms, uh, accounting firms that I knew. And they introduced me to two people that were going to start a new business but they didn't have the skills to have having ever run a business in total. They were good employees and smart, smart guys. Uh, one was an operator. One was a more of a finance guy. Um, and, but they had a, a good idea and uh, they were both coming out of the Tilmany paper company. Um, and they were, going to start a new business called Coding Excellence. And that was basically taking paper and coating it with wax and to be, to be sold to for medical packaging. Hmm. The first big piece of business that, hmm. and we landed it before we started the business. Hmm. Um, was the sweet and low little sugar packets mm -hmm. you don't realize it but that is that paper is coated on the inside of of the package hmm. it's really a moisture barrier because if any moisture gets to that powder yeah it spoils absolutely destroys it yeah so so this was a moisture barrier and it had been done for a long time. I mean, uh, but we discovered a way to, because the packages used to be formed uh, and then glued shut. And we found out a way where you could put the wax at say 123 melt point and then you would drop a wand on the on the seal of uh, the seal and take it off and that wax would solidify in an instant so much much faster because you used to have to hold the glue tightly and hmm. it until it it worked and kept the package shut so you could all of a sudden run your machines four times as fast. Yeah. So you get some efficiency going. Yeah. So you got a, an un unbelievable amount of efficiency. So we had the advantage of, of introducing this product to sweet and low. And then we took it out to every other uh, package guy. <laughs> Uh, were you just selling it was so were you selling the coding 
like technology to sweet and low or were you actually doing the sweet and low packet run and and doing uh, the manufacturing part of that? Yeah. Uh, Well, we never did the manufacturing. That's probably smart. Yeah. We eventually did. And, and by the way, the people that I all worked with on that were all Cuban immigrants in Miami (laughs) who had come out of the sugar business. And I remember one time calling this guy, uh, I can't remember his name right offhand, um, but, and he, he lived in Miami and he, he uh, operated the Sweet and Low, which was Cumberland Farms. Uh, and he handled all that business for them because of his experience in the, in the sugar business. And I said, I would love to come down and visit you and really experience the Cuban community. I I don't want to just come to your office and we meet there. I would really like to be introduced to the Cuban community in Miami. And he gave me a two-day indoctrination. We ate every single meal for those two days at Cuban restaurants, spoke just to Cuban people. I, my, my Spanish improved immensely in those two days. It, it was a terrific experience. It's fun to do that kind of thing. That's yeah. one of my favorite things about Chicago is since the, the um, neighborhoods are still so segmented, you can go to the Ukrainian village and go to like a restaurant where people are speaking Ukrainian with my wife's Polish, right? We would go to like yeah. Polish restaurants, like true ones, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's fun. It's like a real cultural experience. Yeah. And, and that, that, and that built the relationship with those people to where it was a really solid bond. Yeah. He he said, if you're interested in our community, I am interested in you. Hmm. I mean, it was as simple as that. I mean, it was it was totally unrelated to the business that became the bond that really, really held you together. That's cool. A, so, a legitimate human connection creating yeah, like uh, one of those allegiances, right? That somebody yeah, run through a wall yeah, for you. Yeah. And you didn't realize it at the time you did it because it was interesting, right? I, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm really benefiting from this. Uh, and you didn't think about it as the way they would be looking at it and the interest that you took in them. Uh, so it, it, it was an, uh, a, a life learning experience that had business application. Um, so we ended up eventually we, we got into the printing of the package because we would be able to, uh, print it right when we were, uh, coding the paper. We would print the, the reverse side of it. Uh, so you'd had a continuous operation of printing and coding. Uh, And then we got in eventually into slitting so that we would be able to send the actual individual packets uh, to the the fulfilling operation, which I think was done around New York somewhere. Um, And and then we, we got into every other 
Equal was our second big customer in that category. And we we ran through, we did Splenda, we did Equal, we did Sweet and Low, we did them all. <laughs> because we had the mo the the industry was really rather old. Um and so they were using old equipment. When we started in the business, we were able to purchase extra wide equipment uh, faster. It would, would be able to do the coding much more precisely. So we had a big, big manufacturing advantage uh, hmm. that we took full advantage of. We would pass some of our savings on to the customer and then we would keep some of the savings for us for margin hmm. it, it, it was it was a great business and then you got into medical packaging because a lot of uh sterilization equipment goes into a sealed package um so we were able to provide the coating uh the 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 covering that was uh you know you'd have a device in a in a plastic container and then it would be covered with a uh, uh a coated sheet of of paper or uh, film uh, that you would peel off to uh, and and then it would be sterilized in in, in the process so we we just had got you real unique uh pockets of business that we were able to so we grew that business literally in less than five years to a 150 million dollar business hmm. what were the margins like do you remember from, offhand from nothing uh yeah I, i'm embarrassed that i do know the margins <laughs> and they were really good huh I mean, they well, you don't have to share them if you don't want to. I just, I, I'm thinking you, you, t you seem like you're transitioning through your career to better and better businesses. Well, I did, but again, it was, it was just lucky. Um, so eventually, we sold that business uh, to a group of investors from Wisconsin. Um, we were based in Wisconsin, and. We sold it to a bunch of people that were up in Green Bay. Uh, some of them involved with the Packers. Hmm. Uh, and uh, That's kind of fun for you as a Packers fan, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we actually had season tickets to the Packers. And we our four seats were literally right on the 50-yard line. Two of them oh. would be on one side of the 50. Two of the seats would be on the uh, other other side of the 50. But we were way, way up in the stadium, like 50, row 56. And it only went to 60. Hmm. And But eventually at Lambeau Field, they built the boxes, the corporate boxes, on top of the stadium. Yeah. So all of a sudden you realize – Oh, I'm in row 56, which is really close to the top. But look at those people up there paying <laughs> a fortune to watch this game. And I'm closer to it than they are. Yeah. 
The only difference is they have heat, right? But yeah, they, <laughs> which they matters had, in Wisconsin. They had heat and refreshments. <laughs> That's right. That's interesting. But so, where are you at your in your career when you sold this? Is this like right before private equity, or yes, actually, it, it was almost at the same time. Huh. I had a very good friend uh, who's no no longer living that owned a company in Nina, Wisconsin, which is the town that we lived in. And it was a, it was a, a business involved with building products. It was called Abitibi Building Products, which they had bought out of a Canadian, Abitibi is a Canadian company, and they bought the uh, building products division out of Abitibi Paper Company. And he was, because he had uh, had a lot of building products experience and was operating this business, he owned the business, and he asked me to join his board of directors. And I, I wow, you know, this was a good experience, uh, learn a new industry uh, at, a, at a level where I, you know, I won't expose my weaknesses. Uh, and so he, I, I, I did that. And, and he ended up selling his business to Kohlberg and company, the private equity firm. And so he went to Kohlberg right after the purchase and said, Oh, there is one member of my board of directors that I want to continue to be a member of our board. Huh. And, uh, and Kohlberg said to him, I'm sorry, but we do not have any outside directors. The board will be four members of Kohlberg and you. That will be the five member board of directors. And He's, and this guy was a very, very persistent guy. So he called them and he said, I'm sorry, but you're making a major mistake. This huh. guy can really add to our business and I want to have him on our board. Hmm. He said, okay, we'll talk to him. And, uh, and so they did talk to me and hmm. had me into into Mount Kisco, which is where they're headquartered. And they said, okay, you know, we'll let him continue. <laughs> uh, this guy passes the test. <laughs> and uh, so I got to know the Kohlberg people through the board meetings uh, for, huh. this, for this company, which they owned for a number of years. And then one day they approached me and they said, we're looking at a company in the paper industry and we'd hmm. like you to help us with our due diligence uh, to, in order to make a decision on whether we should make an offer. So I said, whoa, that would be, that would be a real learning experience for me. I'd, I'd enjoy that. It's a way to grow. So they, they, Figured they had a real pigeon on their hands. Like, <laughs> oh, we're not going to even pay him. <laughs> he's he's going to do this work for us. It's cheaper than most of the people we have to hire. 
So I, 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 I looked at it as really a learning experience. So we looked at this company and the company was actually a division of international paper and it was Tillmany paper in Tillmany, Wisconsin, which was huh. only a couple of towns north of where I live. And it was where the two partners in coding excellence came from. Oh, wow. So a matter of fact, we're at our first due diligence session with the people from Tillmany. And they said, oh, well, we should go around the room and have everybody give us a little bit about their background. And so they came to me and I said, well, you know, I, I gave my resume and I said, I had been the owner of Coding Excellence. And they said, literally, right there at the minute, this meeting is coming to an end. Yeah, <laughs> this guy knows more than we than we would like him to. <laughs> yeah, and he, by the way, he took two of our key employees. <laughs> so we we broke, and the senior person at Tillmany said, "Jack, could you spend a couple of minutes with me?" And and I did, and he and he said, "This is the reason." while why we stopped the meeting and i said i don't blame you for doing that i had a major falling out with one of your one of your tillmany people and i didn't trust him and he knows that and i literally have a lawsuit going on with him right now and the guy said okay this this meeting is back on Hmm. You feel the same way about him that, that we do. <laughs> so huh. The meeting is back on. Uh, so we went through that meeting and eventually uh, uh, Kohlberg made an offer for the business and won the bidding process. And they came back to me and they said, Jack, we'd like you to be non-executive chairman of that business. Hmm. And they made it very worth your while. They gave you a ton of options in the in the company. They compensated you for that. And they said, we would also like you to join Kohlberg as an operating partner. Hmm. Uh, and we now have four operating partners. You will be the the fifth. And uh and uh, you'll probably likely get involved with some other companies in time. Uh, and, and, I, and I did. I eventually got involved with 10, 11 companies in Kohlberg. Uh, most of the time as, as non-executive chairman. But uh, there was a few times, maybe three, that I was the temporary CEO until we could find a full-time CEO, and then I would step back and become uh, chairman. What's that like to be temporary? Because that role requires some vision and setting, you know, setting the course of where the business is going to go over time. And as a temporary CEO, you're sort of a placeholder. How do you 
Was it that you would figure out their strategic vision and then hire somebody to come in and execute what you had figured out? Uh, because you don't want to be just a placeholder, right? Somebody that's treading water is losing ground. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wasn't very good at treading water. Um, yeah, well, I, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, I, I would, I would get pretty actively involved in the business, but that was my style. I was, I want to know what's going on. I want to be involved. I want to be visible. I want to be a leader who is, has involvement in the business. Uh, I am not just a visionary that is going to just kind of sit, sit, sit back and pontificate. Um, so I would get pretty involved in the business and we would determine, you know, where we had to go. And then you would select people within the business to, to take on the leadership of that particular area. Uh, meanwhile, I was interviewing for CEOs, and and in each case, we would eventually hire one. I think I was maybe CEO for six months at the longest of on those three occasions that I did it, um, until we got somebody on board that you know that would be fill the position full time. Um, so. I, I I got in, involved with this uh, uh, Tilman, Tilmany Paper Company, which was a pretty good size operation, maybe $400 million in sales, maybe even more. Uh, and we made a major acquisition down in Chicago called Packaging Dynamics. Uh, we changed the name of Tilmany to Packaging Dynamics because they were much more of a converter. They would buy Tilmany grades of paper and convert them for end use in a whole variety of different markets. So it was moving down the food chain where you where you got better margins. The margins in the paper industry are not really very good. You have to be a really really good operator to succeed. Um, but even, even if you're one of the best, it's not like you have fat margins. Yeah. You, you can't afford to make mistakes. Um, and in the, in the, when you got further down the, the food chain uh, and you got closer to the end, the end user, your margins improved. Uh, so that was the reason that we purchased packaging dynamics was to move further down the food chain and get closer to the consumer and expand your, your markets. Um, and all using the grades of paper that we produced. So we were um, internally integrated and there was, wasn't any competitor that hmm. had that same structure. So we were able to really take it, take advantage of it. Um, and the, the, uh, it's a bit of a pattern in your career. 
right? I mean, it's the second time that you've said that you sort of have had a, a different type of going to market, whether it's vertical integration in the production side or opening the retail stores. That's interesting. Yeah, but I, and and I'd like to say I knew it at the time. I didn't. <laughs> you just kind of found your way there, and that was the best path. So yeah, just you you narrowed it down to what are your options, what are the best paths to to move forward on, what kind of capital is it going to take, and and then you determine whether you could do it or not. That was the great thing about being part of a private equity firm. When you needed capital, you got it. Yeah. I mean, their whole idea was to how to build value in the businesses. You know, buy it at four times their earnings, build their earnings, invest in the business, extend out your product lines, extend out your geographies, you know, buy competitors so you can consolidate and reduce costs. I mean, all of these methods that you would employ, some more than others, depending on the industry. But the whole idea was, how do you build value in the business? So you buy it at four times, you build the earnings from, you know, say $20 million to $80 million, and then you sell it seven times. Yeah. So yeah, and you're levered sometimes. Right? Yeah, you're, you're. Oh, you're tremendously levered. Yeah. Uh, they they. Kohlberg would not lever as much as some of the players in private equity, but even they would layer, you know, three or four to one. So if they made a, a three hundred million dollar operation, they may put in seventy five million and borrow 225 million. Yeah. Uh, and even that 75 million would come out of a fund that had outside investors in it. Uh, yeah, the GP leverage is crazy when you start to dig into like how much they actually have in it, but it's a good business model. <laughs> what was your favorite business that you saw within uh, once you got sort of to be the chairman of 10 companies? What was like your favorite industry to to look at? Well, I I ended up becoming quote the Wisconsin guy. Okay. Um, so I would I would handle anything that had to do with paper packaging or any business that was based in Wisconsin. Hmm. <laughs> Remember the one time they came to me, there was a there was a business based in Hudson, Wisconsin which is right on the Mississippi River, right across from Mini from Minnesota. Hmm. We're closer to Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is where I would fly into, and it would be about a 45 minute drive over to Hudson. But they can't they uh, I remember Kohlberg was looking at this business and they eventually ended up winning it. And I had been included with on one of the uh, due diligence sessions with with the major owners of the business, and Kohlberg said, "Okay, we've we've won the bidding war for 
Philips Plastics Company, which was a medical device packaging company. And Jack, we'd like you to be the executive chairman of that. And I said, I don't know anything about medical. <laughs> they said, but it's in Wisconsin. <laughs> and and by the way, when we when we were in the final bidding process, the owner of the business said, I want to sell to those guys from Wisconsin. Hmm. And they the Kohlberg people said, You're the only person that we have from Wisconsin. From Wisconsin, that's yeah. That's who they funny. were referring to. So somehow you made an impression on them. I said, because I think I was a Green Bay Packer fan. <laughs> well, that <laughs> stuff <so> matters. <laughs> and so I ended up becoming chairman of that of that business, uh, having no idea what I was getting into. So, so when you're in that position, Jack, how do you think through hiring a person? Like, how do you know if the CEO is doing a good job? How do you know if the strategy makes sense? Like, how do you cut through all the nonsense to get down to the variables that matter? Well, in this case, the owner of the business that was uh, probably, I don't know, late, late 60s at that time, was going to stay on and run the business for a year and that we were going to search for a new CEO of the business. So he was going to give us time to do that. And so we hired a search firm and went through a pretty exhaustive search for a CEO. And we, we found somebody that had medical packaging experience. He knew the players in the business. He knew all the major pharma company purchasing people. He knew their product development people. He had a lot of really good connections. Uh, so we hired him. He was actually living at the time in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he was going to move to Hudson, Wisconsin. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. how he he did that how he absorbed that shock but he hired he he ended up moving pretty close to st paul minnesota uh and then he would commute about a half an hour out to the to the to the business um but he proved to be really really good the the, the owner of phillips plastic was a a very interesting guy in his own right. Uh, he he was he was a true entrepreneur. He had started the business from scratch, and his philosophy was, "I don't want any town that I put a plant in to be dependent on me for their prosperity." Hmm. So. I, yeah, he wants the ability to leave without feeling all the uh, guilt yeah, associated with right, it. Right, right. Hmm. So he would open up all these small plants all over Wisconsin. Hmm. And they were, they were. I mean, I was, I went to visit several of them. Well, probably all of them at one point or another. And I said, one of them, if I run off the road, they're going to find me in the spring. 
<laughs> Nobody is on this road, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go off the road into five feet of snow, and until that melts, nobody's gonna know where I am. <laughs> That's probably true. But so he, did that create some efficiencies that you guys could you know oh, build a higher, yeah. bigger scale yeah, operating yeah, facility? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it did. I mean, I he, I understood why he why he did it, but he did it very much as a non-business uh he it's an emotional decision any guilt yeah that's uh, right so it left lots of room for operating improvements you know hmm. you where you would combine plants you would build a new plant somewhere and you would absorb three other plants uh it, it, we we really this mainly this guy that came in really knew how to operate that business and also would bring in tremendous amounts of new business. We were the largest uh, producer of of uh, epipens in the hmm. in the in the world. Really? Yeah. Uh, huh. And we ended up buying a European operation called Metasize and folded it into the into the business. And they had a very strong manager over in Europe. It was based just just outside of Amsterdam, but they had a plant in a major plant in Finland, a big plant in Switzerland, another plant in the Prague in in the Czech Republic. Uh, just outside of Prague, and uh, uh, and they they really were uh, they, their major customer was Sanofi, and yeah, was, sure, and it was producing uh, insulin pens. Hmm. Uh, so we ended up getting most of the business uh, domestically. We expanded that into a worldwide effort, which was, I mean, and diabetes was growing as an illness. So the insulin requirements were expanding fast. Uh, we were just riding a, a great wave. And then we, we got other products developed with, with, uh, uh different pharma companies uh and and ended up really riding medical technology which hmm. was expanding rapidly at that point probably still is um i mean you can imagine the the person that's making the injection pens for the the covid vaccines yeah I mean, almost all of that is contract manufacturing. Oh, is it? Yeah. So what well, is, almost is, all uh, of it. cost plus, or like, do you, is it like a tolling agreement, or do you sort no, we, of take on some of the we, risk and then mark it up as you care to? We, we wouldn't. We would negotiate pricing on it. Yeah. Uh, but you, there was not that many people that qualified for it. You had to have clean rooms. You had to have sterilization. You had to really show that you were totally
totally capable of handling that product with no threats at all. Yeah. Um, and they, they were much more interested in the safety. Price was almost secondary. We need to have absolute confidence that you're going to produce this product safely and that we're never going to have any liability at all. Hmm. Uh, so your, your manufacturing capabilities were, were really important. Uh, we ended up selling that business, uh, I think about five years into owning it, uh, which was about the about Kohlberg's average for holding a company was about five years. But they would have some that they held for ten years, and another two companies they held for two years. Yeah. So, but they would average roughly around five years, and I think we owned that one for four or five years, and we had primary sellers that we would go to, go to. We would always work with an investment banking firm on the selling a business, also on acquiring businesses. Um, I mean, everybody was represented by an investment banker. When you, when you're doing a, when you're in a business like that, that's, that's in a, the, the key is how, how much can I depend on you, right? Your, your old businesses were like the paper business is not, there's not that big of an, uh, of an incentive or a focus on, can you get the paper made, right? It's like, how efficiently can you do it? And here you're in a business where it's, can you do it safely? How much are you thinking through how efficiently we should do this? Like, how do you balance sort of the, the only word that I can think of is capital needs to like get the process done right. But I don't know that that's the right way to think about it. Um, Obviously you have to be efficient at some point, but sort of what are you really focusing on and dedicating resources to when you're in that situation? Well, it depends on the circumstance, obviously. Um, uh, in, in, In the medical packaging, you clearly, the highest priority was you need to prove to your customer that you can handle their production safely and that they will never have any liability that they have to be concerned about. And do you have a sense of how, like, when you sell into that customer, how much of your, like, of what you're selling is their ultimate end cost and what they're trying to deliver? Was it a, was it a large portion of their cost of goods sold or was it a sort of a small portion? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and I'm not sure I have an answer yeah. to that. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, Ideal if it was small, then you could charge a bunch. Right? Well, I, I think we were relatively small. Yeah. I mean, they had patent protections and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they they had room to, you know, to price things if they had an effective and non-competitive, uh, then they could charge almost anything they wanted. But I think they were conscious of trying to be fair. Uh, you don't want to be abusive because you invite competition in when you get abusive. You need to make sure that you price it so that it's not real appealing for somebody to come in and compete against you. 
Yeah. If you get excessive, you're inviting in competition. You know, I, uh, I know you have a call that's upcoming and I think that's a heck of a thought to end this one on. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a couple minutes to stretch before your last call. Um, but Jack, I, I appreciate your time so much, man. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad hey, that I hey, get to know, do this I, all the time. I have a, a couple of things written down and I, I okay, I, go ahead. You know, I, I would, I was really thinking about how, how can you be a really effective leader and CEO? My style was to be very, very active in the business. I wanted to be visible. I wanted people to know that I was interested in what they were doing, that uh, and and that they were important, and that it, if you could figure out a way to move down in the organization incentives to be successful, and primarily financial incentives. I mean, you you really need to pat people on the back. But the way you really get their loyalty is through their pocketbook. Yeah. You you have them share in the company's success because they're going to do a really good job because you've provided the incentive to do that. The other thing I think of as, as a CEO, you really need to think strategically. Um, I, I had a, I, I learned this really late in my career because I was so active in the leadership of the business that I never stood back and started to think about strategically, where do you want to go and how do you, how are you going to get there? Uh, I think my time with Kohlberg really taught me to do that. When I was not the CEO of the business, but I would be a non-executive chairman, I found myself really thinking, where do you want to go with this business? How do you want to get there? How much capital does it require to succeed? What are the margins you're going to make when you do get there? So you started to think much more strategically about where how you how you got there hmm. the other thing i found out and it took me a long time to learn that i was very seldom the smartest guy in the room and that used to annoy me wow i gotta work harder i gotta do more i gotta get smarter and then i realized you know you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room but by golly, I want the smartest guy there in the room with me. Yeah. Because that person is going to make everybody else better. And I found that a lot of times the smartest people don't have great people skills. Hmm. So sometimes they, they don't know what to do with their intelligence. They don't know how to put it to good use. And I could help them with that. Yeah. Well, it's a true team, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and so I, 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 I learned these things really late in my career. 
The other thing I would say is, listen. So many people have a tendency to talk. They want to be the loudest guy in the room. If you can't be the smartest, you're going to be the loudest. Um, <laughs> but by golly, you really learn very little when you're talking. You really learn when you listen to somebody else talking. So these, these are the things I kind of learned a little too late in my career, but I still was able to put them, put them to good use. And you develop your own style, right? I mean, everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses, and you just got to figure out how you work with your tool chest. It's uh, an ongoing process. I, I, uh, I struggle with it myself, but I'm getting closer to having the answer. And thankfully, I got you to talk to to figure <laughs> some of the questions out. Well, uh, you're, you're a smart guy and you'll, you'll pave your own way. Well, I got a good role yeah. model, man, and <laughs> the world just learned a little something from him. So I appreciate your time, Jack. And okay. uh, thanks for sharing it. It's okay. Been great. Yeah. Have a good day. All right. You too. See you soon. Right. Bye.